for the reading of the word. As we have been learning over the last few weeks, um, speaking in Nehemiah about what it means to rebuild and restore, one of the things that I think we've come to realize, and if we haven't, we need to come to realize, is that um, nothing can be rebuilt, nothing can be restored if it isn't already broken. And what we're going to learn today is the complexity of what brokenness actually looks like. I think sometimes when we think about brokenness or broken people or situations, there tends to be, especially because we live in such an overly politicized climate, there seems to be this polarizing idea, this very black and white idea about what is wrong or right in the world. And people tend to have the ability, they believe, to pinpoint exactly what is wrong in the world. And what you often find out is, as they pinpoint, it usually involves the other side being the main cause of what is wrong in the world. But what we're going to learn today in this sermon called Silent Oppression is that, yeah, we understand that in our restoration, our renewal, our rebuilding, that things are broken, but I don't think we realize how complex brokenness actually is and how difficult it can be to pinpoint that this thing or that thing is the reason things are broken or if I can just do this, this will fix what is broken. There is for everything, for every sin, for every individual, there is a deeper level of brokenness that we don't always have the luxury of understanding or even being able to broach. But once you really understand that a person's physical brokenness or emotional, psychological, even their spiritual brokenness is as much tied to their spiritual condition and that the roots of those, that brokenness runs much deeper than you can imagine, once you can grasp that, then we can actually do the work that the Lord has called us to do, which requires so much grace. So much mercy, so much patience in order to see and restore not just the elements of brokenness in a person's life that we identify with, but even those deeper roots, those things that we may not even understand. And so what we're going to do is look at this text today and look how broken things were in Nehemiah's time as he thought he was just rebuilding a wall. He quickly learns that he's rebuilding people and mentalities and agendas. So our first point in today's sermon is external conditions reveal the complexity of brokenness. That's what we are seeing in our text. Because we live in such a depressingly broken and polarized world, we often find ourselves, even as Christians, tightroping in between the extremists to figure out where should I land on this issue? And what you learn is the things that were very black and white for you growing up, when you start to really encounter people who are struggling or wrestling with a particular issue, you realize that you can't just take a stance on it, but it, there are complexities, there are variables involved to brokenness. And you realize that not everybody ends up in the same place by taking the same path. Some people are broken because of family situations, because of inherited mental conditions because of whatever may have caused their lives to go awry, just because we've had experience with a person or situations that reflect that doesn't mean we always understand why a person is who they are 
and where they are. And so what we have to at least acknowledge is that there are times when external conditions around us reveal who we actually are. And I'm not talking like little things. I'm talking big things. In our text here, they are wrestling with the famine. We have our own experience with the pandemic. And what you learn, even as we see the residual effects of a pandemic, is those external conditions have a knack for revealing what was already going on inside of a person. And, and there's something interesting about a famine, specifically in this time. I don't care how rich you are. I don't care how powerful you are. I don't care how popular you are, how much acclaim, fame, notoriety you have. When food is scarce, it's scarce for everybody. There is not enough money that you can pay to the ground to make it yield up what it can't yield up. And so there's an interesting thing about famines or plagues or pandemics that it takes people who are normally in the higher rung of society and it puts them on an even field because when people need food, everybody needs food. And the worst thing that can happen if you are rich and powerful is that you be brought down to the same level as the poor and oppressed. But what you do learn, even in our text, is even if being rich doesn't give them more accessibility to food, what you do learn is for the food that was left, it always has to pass through the hands of the rich and the powerful. And what do you think that the rich and the powerful are going to do when they realize there's not enough food for everybody and it's got to come through us first? Well, they're going to take as much as they need for themselves. And then, even if they're kind or noble enough to dole out food for the people who don't have anything, they're only going to get what remains. So after the rich and the powerful have been satisfied, then... If you play the right game, if you jump through the right hoops, then you'll be able to get some food. And that's what we are seeing here. And this is what I want to clue you in. Because most of us in this room probably think that everything that we struggle with in life is a matter of race, it's a matter of money, it's a matter of who was born in the right demographic, all of those things. And all of those things are affected by what we experience. But I will say that everything that we see in life can be reduced to one desire. And it is the desire to be powerful. It is the desire for power. So many people think that we're clamoring for money and resources, but we're really clamoring for power. And people will do whatever they need to do to feel like they have power. More importantly, not just power, because I don't think power is a sinful thing, but power that gives you the ability to leverage what you have over people who do not have it. Which is not only sin, but probably the dictionary definition of oppression. You can be the richest person in the world, but if somebody has leverage over you, you're powerless. 
I remember there was this episode of this boxing series, and it was this individual, it wasn't Mike Tyson, but it was this boxer who was extremely powerful. I mean, big, strong, combination of fast, all the things that you could imagine would make a person scared. And he's frightening. Every fight he had won, but not just won it, he had won every single fight that he had by knockout. Every single one of them. And so it was becoming increasingly difficult for people to fight him because people knew that, well, he's knocking folks out. And these are well-trained, qualified boxers, but none of them can quite compete up to his level. Now, there was this local training facility that the boxers would go to, all of them would go to, and he's a brute of a man. He's towering. And every time he would go in this facility and work out, he really didn't get conversation from many people because, understandably, even the boxers were afraid of him. And so as he would go in there, people would do the best that they could to get out of his way. Well, one day, he's sitting in the locker room after he had just trained, and he thinks he's all alone. As he's sitting there on the bench in the locker room, thinking nobody else is around, he takes out a needle, and he injects himself with steroids. Now, obviously, this is illegal, but he thinks nobody knows, nobody sees. What he doesn't know is that there was this small amateur boxer who was there to train who had actually witnessed what had happened. And so the very next day, he comes and he challenges this brute of a man, this big, huge, powerful man. He challenges him to a fight, to a boxing match with a $20,000 purse prize. Now, this big man thinks it's stupid, and let me tell you why. I got some advice from an old teacher, Frank Willis. He says, you never fight anybody who's smaller than you. Because if you win, they're going to say, you beat up that little bitty person. And if you lose, they're going to say, you got beat up by that little bitty person. So if you're bigger than somebody, you never engage in a fight with them. So this boxer is not stupid. He has nothing to gain from fighting this man. He has way more than $20,000. So he tells him, I'm not going to fight you. But then this little boxer takes out a little picture. And he shows him the image of that same powerful boxer injecting those steroids into his body. And he tells him, he says, you know, if you don't fight me, I'm going to take this picture and I'm going to post it and everybody's going to see who you really are. Now, this big brute of a man doesn't feel as powerful as he once did. So he enters a negotiation because now somebody has leverage. And he says, okay, well, how about this? How about we don't even fight? How about I just give you the 20000 and we call it even? But he tells him, he says, see, that won't work because this is what's going to happen. We're going to fight. You're going to let me beat you. I'm going to also get $20,000, and I am going to become the most popular boxer in the world because I beat the unbeatable. And in that moment, the most powerful man in the room became the weakest man in the room. Y'all, everything that we see in life is a matter of leverage. And when people take what they have over someone and they leverage it to get what they want, that is oppression. That is sin. 
And we have seen since the beginning of time, whether it is in the garden or whether it is powerful men and women, that whenever they have an opportunity, does not matter how powerless they once were, the moment power is in the hands of sinful man, they take it and they leverage it for their own good. And I want you to notice something that's really important here because that's exactly what is happening in this text. Nehemiah has gone to rebuild this broken place, but he realizes, oh, this is how this place has gotten so broken because there is a layer of brokenness that is in jurisdiction over these people. So no, it's not enough to think I can just come build a wall when there are people who are still in power who even if I rebuild this wall, rebuild this city, rebuild this economy, if wicked people still have their hands in it, it would just be like Jesus described. A tomb that is beautiful on the outside, but on the inside is full of dead bones, broken. So what does Nehemiah do when he sees this oppression? It's our second point. He confronts it. He confronts their injustice. And while this oppression may have been silent, Nehemiah is not silent about addressing it. Because for him, it cannot go unnoticed. And let me go ahead and say this so that we can be clear, so that we can understand what is our stance as Christians. If you are a Christian in this room, whenever you see any evil, any wrongdoing, any affliction, any brokenness, any leveraging of power and resources over any group of people by people who have that power, you have a duty and an obligation to address it. Because we are all image bearers. It doesn't matter if the issue is not your issue. It doesn't matter if it has no relevance to you. If it's wrong, then we have an obligation as believers to address it. Because if we say nothing, then our silence is compliance. And there should never be a question as, in the midst of wrongdoing, where are the Christians? What did the Christians say about it? There are no alliances or allegiances that should prevent us from addressing the truth. Let me say that again. There is no political, social, denominational there is no alliance or allegiance that you should have that should ever stop you from addressing the truth. And I don't care how noble you think the alliance or the allegiance is, if it makes you silent about wrong, then that is the wrong allegiance or alliance. Look at what Nehemiah says. He says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. Let me tell you what Nehemiah is experiencing and expressing here. This is what we call a righteous indignation. He is angry about what he knows angers God. 
And because he has a mission, as I have told you, a mission that is to completely rebuild these people, he knows that I cannot do the work that the Lord has called me to do without addressing the root of their issues. You want to be a church, you want to be a Christian, you want to be a people who has a mission you want to talk about. We're for Christ, we're for culture, we're for community. But do you know what that brokenness actually looks like in somebody's life? I was watching a video yesterday, and there's this man who was in his truck. He's sitting in his truck, and it was a guy, and he said, hey, I just need two dollars. I just need two dollars. And the guy sitting in the truck, he's at the gas station, he says, okay, what do you need two dollars for? He's like, I just need socks. He's like, well, I can just buy you socks. I can buy you a lot more socks for one or two dollars. He was like, you want me to just buy the socks? He's like, no, no, I, I, just, need the, I just need the money. He said, well, how about this? What about food? Are you hungry? He's like, no, man, I just need one or two dollars. And so the man stops and he says, listen, just be honest with me. Just tell me what it is you need. And he says, I'm not going to lie to you, man. I just need to get high. He was like, see, now, now if you're honest with me, I know how to help you. He said, listen, I am a recovered addict myself. I know what you're going through. I know what you're feeling. I will give you a job right now if you agree to come through this program I have. And he says, man, if you can't give me $2, then I don't really want to have a conversation. Because you realize, just like that man realized, giving this person a job is not the solution. Giving this person $2 is not the solution. It is to get to the core of what has broken you in such a place where I am giving you the source and the resources that you need but you'd rather take $2 to get high. Because perhaps that man had been through something, had endured some situations and conditions that had placed him where he was. Which I'm trying to get everybody in this room to understand is everybody that we're going to come across. All of the work that we think that the Lord has called us to do there is a deeper-rooted level of hurt and brokenness and sin involved. And I'm saying, if you don't feel like you've been called to do the real rebuilding work, then maybe Christianity isn't the thing for you. Everybody thinks that they can go, you know, give a cheap solution to the problem, but what does it mean to really get into the roots? In the face of brokenness, in the face of wrong? And do we have the courage, the fearlessness to confront it? Because I want you to think about what Nehemiah does here. Bible's clear, he's, he's confronting the nobles, he's confronting the priests, he's confronting the people who are in power, which means he is not concerned about self preservation. He is not concerned about his safety or his comfort. He is concerned about making what is wrong right, even if it puts him at risk. This is what it means to be a Christian. 
Everybody can complain about things not being as good as they should be, but what are we doing in order to make what is wrong right? And are we so concerned about our lives and our livelihood and our jobs and our comfort and our income that in the face of wrong, when we see people getting treated a way they shouldn't be, because we need a job or a check or a house, do we just keep our mouths quiet and think maybe somebody else will deal with it? Maybe somebody else will speak up. Maybe somebody else will say something. Maybe somebody else will do something. But you're the Christian. You're the light. You're the salt. And if the Christians are not shining a light in the proverbial darkness, who will? If the Christians are not out here doing the work, who's going to do it? If we are not the ones confronting wrong and evil in his face, even at the risk of the things that we are trying to preserve, who is going to do the work? And this is what makes being a Christian difficult. We want such an easy Christianity. We want it just to go so spot-free and, and, and fly right by that we don't run into any major issues that is about prosperity for us, even if we don't say it. That's what we want. We want to live these charmed and easy lives. But how could I dare expect to have more in my life than Jesus did? When his life was a life It's the most powerful man that's ever lived, and it is a life of turmoil and abuse and offense because he will not stop confronting evil. And and it doesn't land him where we would love it to land, and he ended up on earth in a kingdom, in a palace. He will. He will. But in that moment, he ended up on a cross. He ended up dead as a result of telling the truth. We have an obligation out of our duty to God to seek peace and rightness. And y'all, that is not very preserving. In fact, that will put us in more precarious positions than we probably would prefer to be. But if we are Christians who want to do the dirty work or do we just want to say that we're committed? This is no less than what Jesus in his goodness does for us. Jesus, y'all, sees the affliction of humanity under the burden of sin, and he saw how Satan was leveraging death over all of creation as a means to oppress us. And Jesus, in his goodness, leaves eternity, and he leaves comfort. He sees the yoke and the burden that Satan was placing on our backs because of our sin. And he breaks that burden. He breaks that yoke. He looses the bond of sin that was on us. 
How can I be a Christian and not feel that I am just as obligated to do the same thing for others that Jesus has done for me? By realizing, by the way, I am only free because the Lord has made me free. And he gave up his life in order that I might be free. How can I reasonably absorb what Christ has done for me and not feel like I need to do it for somebody else? If you're a Christian, this is the heart of service. Finally, our last very quick point, return and restore. Look at what Nehemiah says their requirement is. This is beautiful, but it's hard. He says, you've got to restore these people their dignity by returning to them what was taken from them. Return them, because they had taken people, return them and return their stuff. When we think about in the annals of history how people have tried to justify all sorts of types of evils and even say they did it in the name of Christianity, my belief is you can't be reading this book. This is a book about freedom where all of us are made equal in the image of God and not a single one of us has any leverage over another kind of person. And that God alone is the supreme ruler and power. And that we are all defaulting to his authority. I have no authority outside of God and what is written in this book. It doesn't have to be Christianity because you say it's Christianity. This is the real faith. This is what it really looks like. And y'all, we have to know this and be about this. We live in a world where there are all sorts of other religions arising in response to wrong and evil that they've seen, thinking that you can replace one power with a next. But I'm telling you now, if what you believe does not firmly place Jesus on the throne, what you believe is wrong. If your whiteness or your blackness or your femaleness or your maleness is on the throne, then you are wrong. Simple. When we think about the ways that God has called us to serve and rebuild, have we thought about how we've been called to rebuild and restore things, something as simple as a person's dignity? Are we leading the charge in that? Or do we just see them as a case, as a case study of our Christianity? Have we thought about advocating for them to restore things that may have been taken away by manipulative forces? Have we considered it? 
Well, Brandon, don't you realize how hard that is? (laughs) Yeah, of course I realize. Do you realize, Brandon, how much that requires of us? Yeah, I do. But I'll tell you this. When we were collectively banned from the garden and when we had a fissure in our relationship with God because of sin, through Jesus Christ, he has returned our sense of being to us. He has secured our standing with him forever. And where sin has stripped away my dignity and marred the image of Christ in me, he has come to make me whole again. To bridge the gap that was between us and our Father so that we can be in right relationship with Him again. You don't think anybody else in the world needs that as well? Why is the world so broken? It's broken because of sin. And I'm telling you, What everybody is longing for and looking for is to see that broken place in their relationship with God, even if they don't know that's what it is, is to see it made whole. And you could end up being like me and a lot of other people who will chase thing after thing and think, okay, this is what's wrong or this is the problem, but but it's all because of the way that sin has fractured our relationship with our creator. And if we know that, then you won't stress about who gets voted in as president. I forget that we even have a president. You don't worry about who is the mayor of Tarrant or who's suing who. I don't care. Because Jesus is on the throne. My faith is not in them to make anything right. Everything that is broken in this world can only be made whole and made right through Jesus. That's it. And I got a lot of peace and comfort with that because I know I am not his sole agent of change. If God wants to work through me in a sermon, he'll do that. But I also know That if I keep my mouth shut, he got rocks and he got donkeys. God will do whatever he needs to do to get whatever he needs to get done, done. And I'm just telling you, as I close, it's better for him to get it done through your submission and your obedience than for you to have to go through hell and come back and realize that if I had just obeyed in the beginning, things would have been better. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for just the word. God, we thank you for the encouragement that we get in the word, uh, Lord. We, we do see so much brokenness in our world, and God, everybody has a solution. God, I've got brokenness in my own heart, in my own life, and And I think I know the ways that that can be made right and healed, God. But 
everything that I try to do, everything that we all try to do apart from you, God, we will never be healed. We will never be made whole. So God, first, help us know that all brokenness starts with sin. And Satan will use everything to delude us and make us think, you know, it's a race issue, it's a this issue, but it all starts with sin. But God, if I'm also who I say I am, if we are the Christians you have called us to be, then even in the face of that brokenness, the spiritual wickedness that we do see in high places, God, give us the courage and the strength to not be silent, but to have a holy boldness to tell the truth, to do the work, to call out wrong in every place and area and avenue that we see it, even if that wrong calls itself Christianity. We have a duty and an obligation because of what you have done for us. Lord, I do pray if there is anybody who is in this room, anybody who is watching, who feels that brokenness in their relationship with you and wants to know, how can I be made whole? Well, God, it is not going to come through a relationship on earth that they feel like was broken. It's not going to come from Finances being right is not going to come from getting the right job, the right spouse. It's only going to come from you. And my prayer, God, is that we can be those agents that you've called us to be to direct people to the truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray.